Welcome back to Hearth Tales. This is season three, and I'm so excited to be sharing more stories with you. This season we'll do a few things different, including still reading some of our smaller tales, but also including some books as well. Classics and beautiful, gentle stories. Thanks for listening. For the first episode of season three, we're going to be reading the second book of the Little House series. The second book is a standalone and can be read all by itself. The book is called Farmer Boy, and I'll read you a brief description before we get started. While Laura Ingalls grew up in a little house on the western prairie, Almanzo Wilder is living on a big farm in New York State, where he and his brother and sisters work at their chores from dawn to dinner most days, no matter what the weather. There's still time for fun, though, especially with the horses, which Almanzo loves more than anything. Without further ado, let's start reading part one of Farmer Boy. Before we get started, I wanted to be sure to give you all the facts about this book, so that as always, you have the information in front of you to know if this is the right choice for your family to listen to or not. If nothing else, you can give it a try and turn it off if it doesn't feel good for you. Because this book was written about a time so long ago, and it was authored so long ago as well, there are some themes in this book that we wouldn't necessarily write about in modern day, or at least we wouldn't write it in this way. Things like children should be seen and not heard, schoolhouse punitive discipline, and some gender issues as well, even some racial ones when talking about the local Native Americans. I wanted to bring this up so that you knew what you would be listening to and not be surprised if something popped out, and to remind you about how long ago this was written. I still feel that the general tones of these Laura Ingalls Wilder books are overall gentle and lovely to listen to. And they are a historical representation of how times were during pioneer life back in those days. So with that information, if it feels right for you, I would love for you to listen to Farmer Boy. And if not, skip to one of our other stories that you'll enjoy more. I always put a disclaimer in front of things that are questionable. Thanks for listening. Farmer Boy, written by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Chapter 1. School Days. It was January in northern New York State, 67 years ago. Snow lay deep everywhere. It loaded the bare limbs of oak and maples and beeches. It bent the green boughs of cedars and spruces down into the drifts. Billows of snow covered the fields and the stone fences. Down a long road through the woods, little boy trudged to school with his big brother Royal and his two sisters Eliza Jane and Alice. Royal was thirteen years old, Eliza Jane was twelve, and Alice was ten. Almanzo was the youngest of all, and this was his first going to school because he was not quite nine years old. He had to walk fast to keep up with the others, and he had to carry the dinner pail. 
Royal ought to carry it, he said. He's bigger than I be. Royal strode ahead, big and manly in boots, and Eliza Jane said, No, Monzo, it's your turn to carry it now because you're the littlest. Eliza Jane was bossy. She always knew what was best to do, and she made Almanzo and Alice do it. Almanzo hurried behind Royal, and Alice hurried behind Eliza Jane in the deep paths made by bobsled runners. On each side the soft snow was piled high. The road went down a long slope, then it crossed a little bridge and went on for a mile through the frozen woods to the schoolhouse. The cold nipped Almanzo's eyelids and numbed his nose but inside his good woolen clothes he was warm. They were all made from the wool of his father's sheep. His underwear was creamy white, but mother had dyed the wool for his outside clothes. Butternut hulls had dyed the thread for his coat and his long trousers. Then mother had woven it, and she had soaked and shrunk the cloth into heavy, thick, full cloth. Not wind nor cold nor even a drenching rain could go through the good full cloth that mother made. For Almanzo's waist she had dyed fine wool as red as a cherry, and she had woven a soft, thin cloth. It was light and warm and beautifully red. Almanzo's long brown pants buttoned to his red waist with a row of bright brass buttons all around his middle. The waist's collar buttoned snugly up to his chin, and so did his long coat of brown full cloth. Mother had made his cap of the same brown full cloth, with cozy ear-flaps that tied under his chin, and his red mittens were on a string that went up the sleeves of his coat and across the back of his neck. That was so he couldn't lose them. He wore one pair of socks, pulled snug over the legs of his underdrawers, and another pair outside the legs of his long brown pants, and he wore moccasins. They were exactly like the moccasins that Indians wore. Girls tied heavy veils over their faces when they went out in winter, but Almanzo was a boy, and his face was out in the frosty air. His cheeks were red as apples, and his nose was redder than a cherry, and after he had walked a mile and a half he was glad to see the schoolhouse. It stood lonely in the frozen woods at the foot of Hardscrabble Hill. Smoke was rising from the chimney, and the teacher had shoveled a path through the snowdrifts to the door. Five big boys were scuffling in the deep snow by the path. Almanzo was frightened when he saw them. Royal pretended not to be afraid, but he was. They were the big boys from Hardscrabble Settlement, and everybody was afraid of them. They smashed little boys' sleds for fun. They'd catch a little boy and swing him by his legs, then let him go head first into the deep snow. Sometimes they made two little boys fight each other, though the little boys didn't want to fight and begged to be let off. These big boys were sixteen or seventeen years old, and they came to school only in the middle of the winter term. They came to thrash the teacher and break up the school. They boasted that no teacher could finish the winter term in that school, and no teacher ever had. This year the teacher was a slim, pale young man. His name was Mr. Corse. He was gentle and patient, and never whipped little boys because they forgot how to spell a word. Almanzo felt sick when he thought how the big boys would beat Mr. Corse. Mr. Corse wasn't big enough to fight them. There was a hush in the schoolhouse, and you could hear the noise the big boys were making outside. The other pupils stood whispering together by the big stove in the middle of the room. 
Mr. Corse sat at his desk. One thin cheek rested on his slim hand, and he was reading a book. He looked up and said pleasantly, "'Good morning.' Royal and Eliza Jane and Alice answered him politely, but Almanzo did not say anything. He stood by the desk, looking at Mr. Corse. Mr. Corse smiled at him and said, "'Do you know I'm going home with you tonight?' Almanzo was too troubled to answer. "'Yes,' Mr. Corse said. "'It's your father's turn.' Every family in the district boarded the teacher for two weeks. He went from farm to farm till he had stayed two weeks at each one. Then he closed school for that term. When he said this, Mr. Corse rapped on his desk with his ruler. It was time for school to begin. All the boys and girls went to their seats. The girls sat on the left side of the room and the boys sat on the right side, with the big stove and wood box in the middle between them. The big ones sat in the back seats, the middle-sized ones in the middle seats, and the little ones in the front seats. All the seats were the same size. The big boys could hardly get their knees under their desks, and the little boys couldn't rest their feet on the floor. Almanzo and Miles Lewis were the primer class, so they sat on the very front seat, and they had no desk. They had to hold up their primers in their hands. Then Mr. Corse went to the window and tapped on it. The big boys clattered into the entry, jeering and loudly laughing. They burst the door open with a big noise and swaggered in. Big Bill Ritchie was their leader. He was almost as big as Almanzo's father. His fists were as big as Almanzo's father's fists. He stamped the snow from his feet and noisily tramped to a back seat. The four other boys made all the noise they could, too. Mr. Corse did not say anything. No whispering was permitted in school and no fidgeting. Everyone must be perfectly still and keep his eyes fixed on the lesson. Almanzo and Miles held up their primers and tried not to swing their legs. Their legs grew so tired that they ached, dangling from the edge of the seat. Sometimes one leg would kick suddenly before Almanzo could stop it. Then he tried to pretend that nothing had happened but he could feel Mr. Corse looking at him. In the back seats, the big boys whispered and scuffled and slammed their books. Mr. Corse said sternly, A little less disturbance, please. For a moment they were quiet. Then they began again. They wanted Mr. Corse to try to punish them. When he did, all five of them would jump on him. At last the primer class was called, and Almanzo could slide off the seat and walk with Miles to the teacher's desk. Mr. Corse took Almanzo's primer and gave him the words to spell. When Royal had been in the primer class, he had often come home at night with his hands stiff and swollen. The teacher had beaten the palm with a ruler, because Royal did not know his lesson. Then Father said, "'If the teacher has to thrash you again, Royal, I'll give you a thrashing you'll remember.' but Mr. Corse never beat a little boy's hand with his ruler. When Almanzo could not spell a word, Mr. Corse said, "'Stay in at recess and learn it.' At recess, the girls were let out first. They put on their hoods and cloaks and quietly went outdoors. After fifteen minutes, Mr. Corse rapped on the window and they came in, hung their wraps in the entry, and took their books again. Then the boys could go out for fifteen minutes." 
They rushed out shouting into the cold. The first out began snowballing the others. All that had sled scrambled up Hardscrabble Hill. They flung themselves stomach down on the sleds and swooped down the long, steep slope. They upset into the snow. They ran and wrestled and threw snowballs and washed one another's faces with snow, and all the time they yelled as loud as they could. When Almanzo had to stay in his seat at recess, he was ashamed because he was kept in with the girls. At noontime, everyone was allowed to move about the schoolroom and talk quietly. Eliza Jane opened the dinner pail on her desk. It held bread and butter and sausage, doughnuts and apples, and four delicious apple turnovers, their plump crusts filled with melting slices of apple and spicy brown juice. After Almanzo had eaten every crumb of his turnover and licked his fingers, he took a drink of water from the pail with a dipper in it on a bench in the corner. Then he put on his cap and coat and mittens and went out to play. The sun was shining almost overhead. All the snow was a dazzle of sparkles, and the wood haulers were coming down hard Scrabble Hill. High on the bobsleds piled with logs, the men cracked their whips and shouted to their horses, and the horses shook jingles from their string of bells. All the boys ran shouting to fasten their sleds to the bobsleds runners, and boys who had not brought their sleds climbed up and rode on the loads of wood. They went merrily past the schoolhouse and down the road. Snowballs were flying thick. Up on the loads, the boys wrestled, pushing each other off into the deep drifts. Almanzo and Miles rode shouting on Miles's sled. It did not seem a minute since they left the schoolhouse, but it took much longer to go back. First they walked, then they trotted, then they ran, panting. They were afraid they'd be late. Then they knew they were late. Mr. Course would whip them all. The schoolhouse stood silent. They did not want to go in, but they had to. They stole in quietly. Mr. Course sat at his desk, and all the girls were in their places, pretending to study. On the boy's side of the room, every seat was empty. Almanzo crept to his seat in the dreadful silence. He held up his primer and tried not to breathe so loud. Mr. Course did not say anything. Bill Ritchie and the other big boys didn't care. They made all the noise they could, going to their seats. Mr. Course waited until they were quiet. Then he said, I will overlook your tardiness this one time. Do not let it happen again. Everybody knew the big boys would be tardy again. Mr. Course could not punish them because they could thrash him. And that was what they meant to do. Chapter 2 Winter Evening the air was still as ice, and the twigs were snapping in the cold. A gray light came from the snow, but shadows were gathering in the woods. It was dusk when Almanzo trudged up the last long slope to the farmhouse. He hurried behind Royal, who hurried behind Mr. Course. Alice walked fast behind Eliza Jane in the other sled track. They kept their mouths covered from the cold and did not say anything. The roof of the tall, red-painted house was rounded with snow, and from all the eaves hung a fringe of great icicles. The front of the house was dark, but a sled track went to the big barns, and a path had been shoveled to the side door, and candlelight shone in the kitchen windows. Almanzo did not go into the house. 
He gave the dinner pail to Alice, and he went to the barns with Royal. There were three long, enormous barns around three sides of the square barnyard. Altogether, they were the finest barns in all that country. Almanza went first into the house barn. It faced the house, and it was one hundred feet long. The horse's row of box stalls was in the middle. At one end was the calves' shed, and beyond it the snug hen-house. At the other end was the buggy-house. It was so large that two buggies and the sleigh could be driven into it, with plenty of room to unhitch the horses. The horses went from it into their stalls, without going out again into the cold. The big barn began at the west end of the horse barn, and made the west side of the barnyard. In the big barn's middle was the big barn floor. Great doors opened onto it from the meadows, to let loaded hay wagons in. On one side was the great hay bay, fifty feet long and twenty feet wide, crammed full of hay to the peak of the roof far overhead. Beyond the big barn floor were fourteen stalls for the cows and oxen. Beyond them was the machine shed, and beyond it was the tool shed. There you turned the corner into the south barn. In it was the feed room, then the hog pens, then the calf pens, then the south barn floor. That was the threshing floor. It was even larger than the big barn floor, and the fanning mill stood there. Beyond the south barn floor was a shed for the young cattle, and beyond it was the sheepfold. That was all of the south barn. A tight board fence twelve feet high stood along the east side of the barnyard. The three huge barns and the fence walled in the snug yard. Winds howled and snow beat against them, but could not get in. No matter how stormy the weather, there was hardly ever more than two feet of snow in the sheltered barnyard. When Almanzo went into these great barns, he always went through the horse barn's little door. He loved horses. There they stood in their roomy box stalls, clean and sleek and gleaming brown, with long black manes and tails. The wise, sedate workhorses placidly munched hay. The three-year-olds put their noses together across the bars. They seemed to whisper together. Then softly their nostrils whooshed along one another's necks. One pretended to bite, and they squealed and whirled and kicked in play. The old horses turned their heads and looked like grandmothers at the young ones. But the colts ran about excited, on their gangling legs, and stared and wondered. They all knew Almanzo. Their ears pricked up and their eyes shone softly when they saw him. The three-year-olds came eagerly and thrust their heads out to nuzzle at him. Their noses, prickled with a few stiff hairs, were soft as velvet, and on their foreheads the short, fine hair was silky smooth. Their necks arched proudly, firm and round, and the black manes fell over them like a heavy fringe. You could run your hand along those firm, curved necks in the warmth under their mane. But Almanzo hardly dared to do it. He was not allowed to touch the beautiful three-year-olds. He could not go into their stalls, not even to clean them. He was only eight years old, and father would not let him handle the young horses or the colts. Father didn't trust him yet, because colts and young, unbroken horses are very easily spoiled. A boy who didn't know any better might scare a young horse, or tease it, or even strike it, and that would ruin it. It would learn to bite and kick and hate people, and then it would never be a good horse. Almanzo did know better. 
He wouldn't ever scare or hurt one of those beautiful colts. He would always be quiet and gentle and patient. He wouldn't startle a colt or shout at it, not even if it stepped on his foot. Father wouldn't believe this. So Almanzo could only look longingly at the eager three-year-olds. He just touched their velvet noses, and then he went quietly away from them and put on his barn frock over his good school clothes. Father had already watered all the stock, and he was beginning to give them their grain. Royal and Almanzo took pitchforks and went from stall to stall, cleaning out the soiled hay underfoot and spreading fresh hay from the mangers to make clean beds for the cows and the oxen and the calves and the sheep. They did not have to make beds for the hogs because hogs make their own beds and keep them clean. In the south barn, Almanzo's own two little calves were in one stall. They came crowding each other at the bars when they saw him. Both calves were red, and one had a white spot on his forehead. Almanzo had named him Star. The other was a bright red all over, and Almanzo called him Bright. Star and Bright were young calves, not yet a year old. Their little horns had only begun to grow hard in the soft hair by their ears. Almanzo scratched around the little horns because calves liked that. They pushed their moist, blunt noses between the bars and licked with their rough tongues. Almanzo took two carrots from the cow's feed box and snapped little pieces off them and fed the pieces one by one to Star and Bright. Then he took up his pitchfork again and climbed into the haymows over yard. It was dark there. Only a little light came from the pierced tin sides of the lantern hung in the alleyway below. Royal and Almanzo were not allowed to take a lantern into the haymows for fear of fire. But in a moment they could see in the dusk. They worked fast, pitching hay into the mangers below. Almanzo could hear the crunching of all the animals eating. The haymows were warm with the warmth of all the stock below, and the hay smelled dusty sweet. There was a smell, too, of the horses and cows, and a woolly smell of sheep. And before the boys finished filling the mangers, there was the good smell of warm milk foaming into father's milk pail. Almanzo took his own little milking stool and a pail, and sat down in Blossom's stall to milk her. His hands were not yet strong enough to milk a hard milker, but he could milk Blossom and Bossy. They were good old cows who gave down their milk easily, and hardly ever switched a stinging tail into his eyes, or upset the pail with a hind foot. He sat with the pail between his feet and milked steadily. Left, right, swish, swish. The streams of milk slanted into the pail, while the cows licked up their grain and crunched their carrots. The barn cats curved their bodies against the corners of the stall, loudly purring. They were sleek and fat from eating mice. Every barn cat had large ears and a long tail, sure signs of a good mouser. Day and night they patrolled the barns, keeping mice and rats from the feed bins, and at milking time they lapped up pans of warm milk. When Almanzo had finished milking, he filled the pans for the cats. His father went into Blossom's stall with his own pail and stool, and sat down to strip the last, richest drops of milk from Blossom's udder. But Almanzo had got it all. Then father went into Bossy's stall. He came out at once and said, "'You're a good milker, son.' Almanzo just turned around and kicked at the straw on the floor. He was too pleased to say anything. Now he could milk cows by himself. 
Father needn't strip them after him. Pretty soon he would be milking the hardest milkers. Almanzo's father had pleasant blue eyes that twinkled. He was a big man, with a long, soft brown beard and soft brown hair. His frock of brown wool hung to the tops of his tall boots. The two fronts of it were crossed on his broad chest and belted snug around his waist. Then the skirt of it hung down over his trousers of good brown full cloth. Father was an important man. He had a good farm. He drove the best horses in that country. His word was as good as his bond, and every year he put money in the bank. When father drove into Malone, all the townspeople spoke to him respectfully. Royal came up with his milk pail and the lantern. He said in a low voice, Father, Big Bill Ritchie came to school today. The holes in the tin lantern freckled everything with little lights and shadows. Elmanzo could see that father looked solemn. He stroked his beard and slowly shook his head. Elmanzo waited anxiously, but father only took the lantern and made a last round of the barns to see that everything was snug for the night. Then they went into the house. The cold was cruel. The night was black and still, and the stars were tiny sparkles in the sky. Almanzo was glad to get into the big kitchen, warm with fire and candlelight. He was very hungry. Soft water from the rain barrel was warming on the stove. First father, then Royal, then Almanzo, took his turn at the wash basin on the bench by the door. Elmanzo wiped on the linen roller towel, then standing before the little mirror on the wall he parted his wet hair and combed it smoothly down. The kitchen was full of hoop skirts, balancing and swirling. Eliza Jane and Alice were hurrying to dish up supper. The salty brown smell of frying ham made Elmanzo's stomach gnaw inside him. He stopped just a minute in the pantry door. Mother was straining the milk at the far end of the long pantry. Her back was toward him. The shelves on both sides were loaded with good things to eat. Big yellow cheeses were stacked there, and large brown cakes of maple sugar, and there were crusty loaves of fresh baked bread, and four large cakes, and one whole shelf full of pies. One of the pies was cut, and a little piece of crust was temptingly broken off. It would never be missed. Elmanzo hadn't even moved yet, but Eliza Jane cried out, Elmanzo, you stop that! Mother! Mother didn't turn around. She said, Leave that be, Elmanzo. You'll spoil your supper. That was so senseless that it made Elmanzo mad. One little bite wouldn't spoil a supper. He was starving, and they wouldn't let him eat anything until they had put it on the table. There wasn't any sense in it. Of course, he could not say this to his mother. He had to obey her without a word. He stuck out his tongue at Eliza Jane. She couldn't do anything. Her hands were full. Then he went quickly into the dining room. The lamplight was dazzling. By the square heating stove set into the wall, Father was talking politics to Mr. Corse. Father's face was toward the supper table, and Almanzo dared not touch anything on it. There were slabs of tempting cheese, there was a plate of quivering head cheese. There were glass dishes of jams and jellies and preserves, and a tall pitcher of milk, and a steaming pan of baked beans, with a crisp bit of fat pork in the crumbling brown crust. Almanzo looked at them all, and something twisted in his middle. He swallowed, and went slowly away. The dining room was pretty. 
There were green stripes and rows of tiny red flowers on the chocolate-brown wallpaper, and Mother had woven the rag carpet to match. She had dyed the rags green and chocolate-brown, and woven them in stripes, with a tiny stripe of red and white rags twisted together between them. The tall corner cupboards were full of fascinating things—seashells and petrified wood and curious rocks and books. And over the center table hung an air castle. Alice had made it of clean yellow wheat straws, set together airily with bits of bright-colored cloth at the corners. It swayed and quivered in the slightest breath of air, and the lamplight ran gleaming along the golden straws. But to Almanzo, the most beautiful sight was his mother, bringing in the big willow-ware platter full of sizzling ham. Mother was short and plump and pretty. Her eyes were blue, and her brown hair was like a bird's smooth wings. A row of little red buttons ran down the front of her dress of wine-colored wool, from her flat white linen collar to the white apron tied round her waist. Her big sleeves hung like large red bells at either end of the blue platter. She came through the doorway with a little pause and a tug, because her hoop skirts were wider than the door. The smell of the ham was almost more than Almanzo could bear. Mother set the platter on the table. She looked to see that everything was ready, and the table properly set. She took off her apron and hung it in the kitchen. She waited until Father had finished what he was saying to Mr. Kors, but at last she said, "'James, supper is ready.' It seemed a long time before they were all in their places. Father sat at the head of the table, Mother at the foot. Then they must all bow their heads while Father asked God to bless the food. After that, there was a little pause before Father unfolded his napkin and tucked it in the neckband of his frock. He began to fill the plates. First, he filled Mr. Corse's plate, then Mother's, then Royal's and Eliza Jane's and Alice's. Then, at last, he filled Almanzo's plate. Thank you, Almanzo said. Those were the only words he was allowed to speak at the table. Children must be seen and not heard. Father and mother and Mr. Corse could talk, but Royal and Eliza Jane and Alice and Almanzo must not say a word. Almanzo ate the sweet, mellow baked beans. He ate the bit of salt pork that melted like cream in his mouth. He ate mealy boiled potatoes with brown ham gravy. He ate the ham. He bit deep into velvety bread spread with sleek butter, and he ate the crisp golden crust. He demolished a tall heap of pale mashed turnips and a hill of stewed yellow pumpkin. Then he sighed and tucked his napkin deeper into the neckband of his red waist. And he ate plum preserves and strawberry jam and grape jelly and spiced watermelon rind pickles. He felt very comfortable inside. Slowly he ate a large piece of pumpkin pie. He heard Father say to Mr. Corse, "'The hard-scrabble boys came to school today,' Royal tells me. "'Yes,' Mr. Corse said. "'I hear they're saying they'll throw you out.' Mr. Corse said, "'I guess they'll be trying it.' Father blew on the tea in his saucer. He tasted it, then drained the saucer and poured a little more tea into it. "'They have driven out two teachers,' he said." Last year they hurt Jonas Lane so bad, he died of it later. I know, Mr. Corse said. Jonas Lane and I went to school together. He was my friend.
father did not say any more. Chapter 3 Winter Night After supper, Almanzo took care of his moccasins. Every night he sat by the kitchen stove and rubbed them with tallow. He held them in the heat and rubbed the melting tallow into the leather with the palm of his hand. His moccasins would always be comfortably soft and keep his feet dry as long as the leather was well greased, and he didn't stop rubbing until it would absorb no more tallow. Royal sat by the stove, too, and greased his boots. Almanzo couldn't have boots. He had to wear moccasins because he was a little boy. Mother and the girls washed the dishes and swept the pantry and kitchen, and downstairs in the big cellar, Father cut up carrots and potatoes to feed the cows next day. When the work was done, Father came up the stellar stairs, bringing a big pitcher of sweet cider and a panful of apples. Royal took the corn popper and a pannikin of popcorn. Mother banked the kitchen fire with ashes for the night, and when everyone else had left the kitchen, she blew out the candles. They all settled down cozily by the big stove in the dining room wall. The back of the stove was in the parlor, where nobody went except when company came. It was a fine stove. It warmed the dining room and the parlor. Its chimney warmed the bedroom upstairs, and its whole top was an oven. Royal opened its iron door, and with the poker he broke the charred logs into a simmering bed of coals. He put three handfuls of popcorn into the big wire popper and shook the popper over the coals. In a little while, a kernel popped, then another, then three or four at once, and all at once, furiously, the hundreds of little pointed kernels exploded. When the big dishpan was heaping full of fluffy white popcorn, Alice poured the melted butter over it and stirred and salted it. It was hot and crackling crisp and deliciously buttery and salty, and everyone could eat all he wanted to. Mother knitted and rocked in her high-backed rocking chair. Father carefully scraped a new axe handle with a bit of broken glass. Royal carved a chain of tiny links from a smooth stick of pine, and Alice sat on her hassock, doing her woolwork embroidery. And they all ate popcorn and apples and drank sweet cider, except Eliza Jane. Eliza Jane read aloud the news in the New York Weekly paper. Almanzo sat on a footstool by the stove, an apple in his hand, a bowl of popcorn by his side, and his mug of cider on the hearth by his feet. He bit the juicy apple, then he ate some popcorn, then he took a drink of cider. He thought about popcorn. Popcorn is American. Nobody but the Indians ever had popcorn, till after the Pilgrim Fathers came to America. On the first Thanksgiving day, the Indians were invited to dinner, and they came, and they poured out on the table a big bagful of popcorn. The Pilgrim Fathers didn't know what it was. The Pilgrim Mothers didn't know either. The Indians had popped it, but probably it wasn't very good. Probably they didn't butter it or salt it, and it would be cold and tough after they had carried it around in a bag of skins. Almanzo looked at every kernel before he ate it. They were all different shapes. He had eaten thousands of handfuls of popcorn and never found two kernels alike. Then he thought that if he had some milk, he would have popcorn and milk. You can fill a glass full to the brim with milk and fill another glass of the same size brim full of popcorn. And then you can put all the popcorn kernel by kernel into the milk and the milk will not run over. You cannot do this with bread. 
Popcorn and milk are the only two things that will go into the same place. Then, too, they are good to eat. But Almanza was not very hungry, and he knew Mother would not want the milk pans disturbed. If you disturb milk when the cream is rising, the cream will not be so thick. So Almanzo ate another apple and drank cider with his popcorn and did not say anything about popcorn and milk. When the clock struck nine, that was bedtime. Royal laid away his chain and Alice her woolwork. Mother stuck her needles in her ball of yarn and father wound the tall clock. He put another log in the stove and closed the dampers. It's a cold night, Mr. Corse said. Forty below zero, said father, and it will be colder before morning. Royal lighted a candle, and Almanzo followed him sleepily to the stairway door. The cold on the stairs made him wide awake at once. He ran clattering upstairs. The bedroom was so cold that he could hardly unbutton his clothes and put on his long woolen nightshirt and nightcap. He should have knelt down to say his prayers, but he didn't. His nose ached with cold, and his teeth were chattering. He dived into the soft goose-feather bed between the blankets and pulled the covers over his nose. The next thing he knew, the tall clock downstairs was striking twelve. The darkness pressed his eyes and forehead, and it seemed full of little prickles of ice. He heard someone move downstairs, then the kitchen door opened and shut. He knew that father was going to the barn. Even those great barns could not hold all father's wealth of cows and oxen and horses and hogs and calves and sheep. Twenty-five young cattle had to sleep under a shed in the barnyard. If they lay still all night, on nights as cold as this, they would freeze in their sleep. So at midnight in the bitter cold, father got out of his warm bed and went to wake them up. Out in the dark, cold night, father was rousing up the young cattle. He was cracking his whip and running behind them, around and around the barnyard. He would run and keep them galloping till they were warmed with exercise. Almanzo opened his eyes again, but the candle was sputtering on the bureau. Royal was dressing. His breath froze white in the air. The candlelight was dim as though the darkness were trying to put it out. Suddenly Royal was gone. The candle was not there, and Mother was calling from the foot of the stairs. Almanzo, what's the matter? Be you sick? It's five o'clock. He crawled out, shivering. He pulled on his trousers and waist and ran downstairs to button up by the kitchen stove. Father and Royal had gone to the barns. Almanzo took the milk pails and hurried out. The night seemed very large and still, but the stars sparkled like frost in the black sky. When the chores were done and he came back with Father and Royal to the warm kitchen, breakfast was almost ready. How good it smelled. Mother was frying pancakes, and the big blue platter, keeping hot on the stove's hearth, was full of plump brown sausage cakes in their brown gravy. Almanzo washed as quickly as he could and combed his hair. As soon as Mother finished straining the milk, they all sat down and Father asked the blessing for their breakfast. There was oatmeal with plenty of thick cream and maple sugar. There were fried potatoes and the golden buckwheat cakes, as many as Almanzo wanted to eat with sausages and gravy or with butter and maple syrup. There were preserves and jams and jellies and doughnuts. But best of all, Almanzo liked the spicy apple pie with its thick, rich juice and its crumbly crust. He ate two big wedges of the pie. 
Then, with his cap's warm earmuffs over his ears, and his muffler wrapped up to his nose, and the dinner pail in his mittened hand, he started down the long road to another day at school. He did not want to go. He did not want to be there when the big boys thrashed Mr. Course. But he had to go to school because he was almost nine years old.